Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, citizenship and the presidency. All right, Richard, uh, continuing with the ongoing theme of this presidential campaign engendering some extremely odd public debates. We now have a fight in the Republican presidential field over the citizenship requirement for the presidency and the constitution. Donald Trump saying that Ted Cruz potentially falls short of that requirement because he was born in Canada to a Cuban father and a mother who was an American citizen. Now, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution says the following in its first clause, quote, no person except a natural born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this constitution – I'm sorry, a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall be eligible to the office of president, yes. close quote. So Richard, I guess the question is what constitutes a natural born citizen? Do we have a good answer to that question? Uh, we do. I mean we've had it for a very long time um, and we'll get into the politics of it afterwards but Larry Tribe, when he takes after um, – Cruz does so on the grounds that originalism is really the standard that he's using and by that standard it's ambiguous and he cites to an article by two women, Sarah Duggan and Mary Beth Collins about natural born in the United States and tries to figure out what it means and there is some ambiguity arguably. Uh, but if you actually go back ask what the standard approach would be. You try to figure out what the meaning of those particular terms were at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. And, and these two authors basically spend an enormous amount of time tracing its English antecedents. And it turns out that it includes in the phrase natural born citizen, people who have a single parent or grandparent who is American, even if they're born overseas, which sounds pretty much like Ted Cruz. Um, the basic argument that was made at the time was that we cannot have potential foreign imposters coming in, gaining citizen and turn treason against us, uh, so that the only um, argument about exclusion were those people who had no connection to the United States at the time of their birth and became citizens through naturalization. Well, that doesn't fit uh, Ted Cruz at all. And hence, I think the answer is it's perfectly clear. The cases have always come down in that particular way. And what was really going on was Larry Tribe was needling Ted Cruz uh, because he said, your constitutional philosophy may not allow you to win, but my constitutional philosophy, this open-ended constitutional interpretation might allow us to win, might allow, might allow you um, to win or in fact would guarantee that you win. Could you give our audience, if they haven't been following this argument that closely, a sense for who Larry Tribe is? Because this is the authority that Donald Trump was citing in these debates. People could be forgiven because it was a Republican debate for thinking that Tribe was a conservative intellectual. Well, Larry Tribe is anything but a conservative <laughs> intellectual, um, but he is an extremely influential in intellectual. His peak of influence um, both in the Supreme Court argument stage and as a scholar probably was in the 70s and 80s, and he's known for uh, a huge treatise called American Constitutional Law, um, which sort of was a kind of a deliberate – sort of a, a liberal Bible on the way in which this document ought to be construed. And essentially what happened is the great fault line in American constitutional law politically 
simply on the domestic front is do we have comfort with the progressive state that was essentially cemented into place in the 1937 term or do we have some affection for the classical liberal constitution of enumerated powers, limited government, strong um, strong property rights and vital system of federalism. Tribe is very much on the modernist side of that particular debate and so hence if it's the political irony is you're getting this guy who I don't know whether he's a Republican or Democrat, I just regard him as a slightly imbalanced kind of candidate uh, turning to a liberal in order to do it. Now, what Tribe did was to write a column in the Boston Globe and the way in which he wrote this particular column was to make it very clear that he was trying to take after his pupil. And the headline, I think, shows you it all. It says, under Ted Cruz's own logic, he is ineligible for the White House. And, of course, what that means is under my superior logic, uh, this man, in fact, is eligible uh, for what's going on. And I, I think what's really wrong about this is that Tribe is just extraordinarily sloppy in his effort to make a political point. And this article that I referred to by Duggan and Collins, in effect, seems to come out the other way and is, in fact, a very explicit, very careful, numbingly thorough um, account of an originalist approach to the Constitution. What they do is they go through all the historical searches uh, and sources to figure out what's going on and then come up with a conclusion which is clearly normative. Even if the word natural-born citizen has some ambiguity, it's quite clear, quite clear that it excludes huge numbers of people from becoming citizens, becoming president of the United States, including anybody who came to this country as an immigrant when they were born elsewhere and not American parents. It's worth noting, by the way, that Larry Tribe himself was born in China, of Jewish parents who had escaped from Eastern Europe. Uh, he was born about 1940 and so forth. So he, under any interpretation, is not eligible to be the president of the United States. And, and what the article is designed to say is that this is an archaic conception based upon concerns back in 1787 that don't resonate today. The number of great and heroic Americans that um, are richly deserving of a presidency who arbitrarily excluded is very, very large, and we ought to change the particular rule. Uh, so I read the article less as an argument about what the Constitution means, and more of one is trying to say the way in which this thing should be done. But that's exactly what the originalist point is. Uh, their view about constitutional interpretation is that it's not an open game in which desirable outcomes can be organized at the drop of a hat. It imposes serious limitations on you, and you may disagree with these limitations and do so in a principled fashion, but you can't pretend through a bit of linguistic leisure domain uh, that what says natural born citizen has no bite whatsoever. Um, it has bite. There is a little bit of ambiguity that one can imagine in this. I mean, but in fact, when you actually look at the decided cases uh, dealing with this particular subject, there is no particular case that I've been aware of that falls in some imaginary gray area. Uh, the real question in many cases is what's the payoff with respect to citizenship independent of the natural born because it's a dominant concept throughout the Constitution, yet it's nowhere defined within it. And again, you have to go back to these common law antecedents to figure out what in the world it meant. Richard, here's the advice that Donald Trump has given Senator Cruz about resolving this issue, to go seek a declaratory judgment. Let me read you the quote. You go in seeking the decision of the court without a court case. You go right in. You go before a judge. You do it quickly, close quote. 
How would you score Donald Trump's legal advice? The same way Ted Cruz does. I mean you only go for a declaratory judgment if in fact there's some doubt about the state of affairs. It turns out everybody knows what the facts are. They know his mother was an American. His father was Cuban. He was born in Canada. You apply it against the received wisdom under these cases and it turns out that he wins 100%. So why should he have to basically serve Donald Trump's political ambitions by waltzing off into court, which makes it appear that there actually is some kind of doubt. Look, Trump is an extremely fiendish kind of fellow who knows how to get under everybody's skin, even somebody who's as tough as resilient as Ted Cruz. But I think the right answer to him is the one that Cruz gave. Um, You don't know the first thing about constitutional law. In fact, you don't know the first thing about government. You're a functional illiterate. You have no business being the Republican Party nominee or the party leader. Um, He may not be prepared to use words functional illiterate, but there are a lot of many many people in the... um, Republican Party of a more conventional view who actually regard him as the most dire threat to the party, uh, that if he gets the nomination, the party splits up and the Democratic nominee, perhaps, but not necessarily, uh, Hillary Clinton, gets a shoe into the presidency. And, you know, anything that our friend Cruz does in order to make Donald Trump look as though he's in charge of the agenda is, I think, a political um, disaster because then, in effect, if Cruz were to do this, Trump would come back and announce, you see, I told him he had to do it and I'm such a powerful intellect and pervasive force that he did exactly what I said. Oh, I may have been wrong, but, you know, I didn't say it was for certain. I just thought it was an unsettled question. The man is, you know, he's got the mind of a devious character. I mean, he plays so many angles that you feel like you're a billiard board. The guy is the best master of the two-sentence slam down of anybody I've ever seen. I mean, if tweeting was in fact a form of constitutional discourse and scholarship, he would be having the Regis chair at Harvard, um, <laughs> given his ability to do this kind of stuff. But for heaven's sake, our troops should just basically tell him to stuff it under these circumstances. In fact, I think that I wish some Republican nominee would say to Mr. Trump, you're fired. <laughs> okay, let's move beyond the sort of immediate controversy to some of the broader principles. I, I want to start by going to the constitutional provision itself. You mentioned in passing a moment ago uh, the importance to the founders of the, the concept of citizenship and how it operates in, in this clause. Can you sort of elucidate that for our, our listeners? Why the emphasis here? Why why was it important to keep even you know naturalized citizens from holding the presidency? Well, I mean the they're two different questions. It's clear that the reason we care most about citizenship, it's a test of loyalty that individuals have to their government. And it means that when times of war and sacrifice come forward, citizens are required to stand up and to serve. Uh, Those people who are aliens owe their fiduciary duty to some other nation and therefore do not have that obligation to the United States. In 1787, when all this stuff was debated, you could be citizens of only one country. Dual citizens was the equivalent of inconsistent loyalties and you are not, except maybe in very rare circumstances of which I'm not aware what they might be, have it. Uh, So it was generally thought to be a very big deal about what it is. And, you know, lest anybody want to deny that today, forget about the natural born stuff. If you're a naturalized citizen, you can be deported uh, for various kinds of offenses that got you the citizenship in the first place. And this means, in effect, that you lose all the privileges of being a citizen of the United States, uh, go back to some despotism and so forth. Citizenship is still huge in the international arena. Uh, Try going into some other country without an American passport and see how far 
that it gets you. So um, it is one of these great ironies that it is essentially the organizing doctrine in international law, and yet it receives no explicit definition in the Constitution, at which point I don't care whether you're an originalist or a non-originalist, you've got to get it from somewhere. And the English common law turns out to be the place where most people are going to go because it's addressing exactly these issues, and it's doing so in a context in which it's clearly not um, when the judges hand down their decisions, trying to give partisan advantage to one faction or another. So it's kind of a neutral source of authority to which everybody can turn. So the final question that I'll put to you then, Richard, since we're talking about these structural constitutional questions around the presidency, it's interesting how little has changed in American history. The only big change really coming with the imposition of term limits after Franklin Roosevelt was elected four times, if Richard Epstein is holding a constitutional convention of one, any structural changes he might look at making to the presidency? To the presidency, you know, I think I would keep the two-term limits. I think I would actually remove the natural citizenship requirement and leave it at citizenship at the time that you run for public office. Um, I think that would be a general improvement. The other structural changes that you want to have in the presidency come to the way in which it can act unilaterally, and that's, for example, the subject of the immigration cases on which the Supreme Court granted certiorari today. How much can the president do alone? Uh, he has to take care to see that the law is faithfully executed. Does that mean that he has discretion on what laws he enforces and what ones he does not? I think that issue will come to a head in the court, and I I don't think that there's anything you could do by way of text that's going to make the problem any easier uh, than it is right now. Uh, there is essentially a very deep conflict between trying to follow somebody else's will and having some degree of discretion in the way in which you manage an office, which causes out for discretion. Um, I think Obama has gone over the line, and at this particular point, however, the line is not one which is established uniquely by text or even dominantly by text. It's established by a long series of practices and essentially the great genius of the Constitution, although we did not know it, was that as an incomplete document, it depends upon the willingness of all sorts of people to fill in the blanks with customary rules that bind and benefit all parties equally. And the real risk that you have is that somebody like the president exercises a nuclear option and then the other party has to decide are they going to continue to bomb away in the old same nuclear fashion or are they going to try to go back to the status quo ante? We're seeing that debate in the Senate right now on the question of whether or not the Republicans should reimpose the filibuster requirement for judicial nominees short of the Supreme Court that the Democrats blew up. And there's just a huge division of opinion on the way in which it should go. My view is that the sound way to do it institutionally is for the Democrats when they have the majority control in the Senate to reimpose the limit. If the Republicans do it and the Democrats then take it off the next time round, you're going to see a cycle of destruction and decay. And the same thing is true with executive power. There is no doubt uh, that Bush was quite aggressive in his reading of executive power in some cases, but everything he did was in small potatoes in comparison to the way in which Obama is going to use it. If you read the complaints in the immigration case, uh, they have passage after passage where the president says, I can't do what you want with respect to children who are born outside the United States and have been here for a very long period of time. I'm not an emperor. I'm only a president. Well, you know, two years later, it turns out it's Emperor Obama. Uh, that is, to some extent, he's convicted out of his own mouth. Now, whether that works in a court of law, probably 
probably not because the president isn't a stop by his speeches, but it's certainly something that people ought to take into account when they're trying to look at the larger social and cultural context which surrounds this entire uh, unfortunate episode. So that'll actually be my last question. I lied about that last one. How confident are you that these institutional evolutions will play out in the way that you want them to, in that the legislative branch and the executive branch will sort of reach a new equilibrium along the lines of what you're discussing as opposed to the sort of chaos that it seems like we're seeing now. Well, I mean there's only one player in the field at the leading level. Uh, if you take Trump, he's hopeless on this particular issue because he's never been inside government and he doesn't care about conventions. He's a man who believes in his own arbitrary power, which is why it's so frightening. Somebody like Bernie Sanders has never had any administrative position in government, has always been way out there on the extreme, and Lord knows what he will do. I think the person who is most likely amongst the leaders to do this uh, is Hillary Clinton, given the fact that she's been steeped in both the Senate on the one hand and in the Secretary of State position on the other, so knows something about the protocols, but she has very serious problems of her own, given the way in which she operated as Secretary of State, but I think, in fact, that she's most likely to do it. On the Republican side, you know, ironically, I think anybody on the Republican side who's actually run and held public office is aware of this. Generally speaking, Cruz has a bad reputation amongst his colleagues as a non-cooperator. Rubio has the opposite reputation. Uh, but one never knows whether non-cooperators in the Senate become cooperators when they become president. So I would much prefer to have somebody with some political experience in the office rather than somebody who's a complete outsider and has never held executive power inside of government. And for these purposes, being mayor of Burlington really doesn't cut it. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Tori Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. <laughs>